Welcome to Euro Dollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and in this episode, you're going to learn that there is an unhealthy and bizarre correlation between the credit default swap of Credit Suisse, a Swiss bank, and faith in democracy, as surveyed by well over 100,000 people. And this correlation has stretched back for 15 some years. What? is going on. Jeff, today we're recording this on the 7th of July, and it is the day that Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Britain resigned. And that's too bad, I guess. I don't know. You know, I don't know what he's going to do now, but that's fine. The reason I bring it up is because Britain is going to serve as our jumping off point. We've got an article from The Economist here. This is the 17th of June, so a little bit behind the times there. But of course, The Economist is published in Britain. And guess what, Jeff? They've got a lead essay, lead column, and it is called Britain's Real Problem. Now, for those of you that don't live in Britain, don't worry. This pertains to you as well. And Jeff, the reason we're going to be going over this article is because the financial media rarely, if ever, says that there's this big picture problem. I remember, and, and, and this is the first time that I remember an article saying, our economy stinks, it stunk for a long time, and it started sinking in 2007. And they use words such as disease, and we'll go from there. So this is the first time I've seen that. The closest we ever came to it before the corona was in 2018, yes, 2018, 2017, no, like 2017, 2018, I remember reading articles sometimes in The Economist or The Wall Street Journal, the, you know, the various financial media, and they would say this globally synchronized growth is finally going to lead to recovery. Do you remember those, Jeff? Yeah. Recovery. There was that famous Economist cover that said, you know, it had President Trump in a hot rod that said running hot and how the uh, tax cuts, the the old traditional Keynesian stimulus was going to not just you know globally synchronized growth plus accommodative fiscal policy was going to lead to this massive blast off across the entire global economy. Not just blast off. Yes. But the word recovery. Jeff, recovery from what in 2017 and 2018? Yeah. What were they talking about? They would never say, they would never say, but sometimes they would say the global economy would finally recover from the global financial crisis. They dare not say that was 10 years ago. Maybe in Europe, they were referring to the European sovereign debt crisis, but that was still six, seven, eight years earlier, Jeff. It was sort of the unspoken, um, unspoken belief or unspoken shared belief that we all knew it was that that was the case. And, you know, every time we got close to something like recovery would sputter out. And my contention, my problem, my frustration was always, why didn't it continue into recovery? And they never said so. And you're right, Emil. Nobody ever really talked about it. It was just this year after year after year. I mean, think about Stanley Fisher, 2014. We always have to apologize. Well, why, Stanley? Why do you have to apologize? And in your, what you're saying is, what are you apologizing for? But I think most people realize something wasn't right. And that's been our overriding thing all along. 
connecting these dots, it's not just about money. It's not just about finance or economy. It goes much, much deeper, much, much bigger than that. Then the pandemic came and everyone got a get out of jail free card. Yeah. So now oh. when we're talking about the recovery, time began with the pandemic. No economic history occurred before then. We don't have to worry about it. And that's why this article is so important. This is the first one I've ever seen, let alone after the pandemic, that says we've had a real problem. Economic decline has become a chronic British disease since 2007. So I'm going to read it to you and then you react and you can say, meh, or whatever you'd like to say. Okay. Okay. Here it is. Britain is stuck in a 15 year rut. I don't know if you can tell, ladies and gentlemen, but this is so important. This is the first time I've read that in 15 years. So, okay. Britain's stagnation also holds lessons for other slow-growing countries. Canada, United States, Australia, all manner of countries around the world. Many of them in Europe. Lower GDP means declining global influence. Faltering faith in free markets. Jeff? That's com end of capitalism. Absolutely. Communism, socialism, extremism, nationalism, all the isms. We've talked about some of our most popular, or at least my personal favorite episodes were the ones where we talked about end stage capitalism. Yeah. Jeff, remind everyone what end stage capitalism is and why it makes sense to the millennials and people who are seeing what's happening in the world. It's a Marxist offshoot and it really goes back to Marxism itself, which is the idea that capitalism eventually will, will just hang itself. It'll eventually come to an end because it, it's it, Marxist believe inherently contradictory and it can't go on forever. Of course it does. It continues to go on, but there are these times like the great depression or the last 15 years where the Marxists and the modern uh, Marxists, the cultural Marxists say, aha, see, we told you. Capitalism inherently has an expiration date. It exploits its workers too much. It eventually it impoverishes workers to the point where they can no longer keep the system moving. And as I said, we get into these periods where economic growth becomes prolonged and stagnation. And the Marxists say, see, this is end stage capitalism. It's gone as far as it can. And if you're a young person today, you don't really have any experience with you know, what it used to be like in the pre-crisis era before 2008, what an economic boom actually looks like, you're very susceptible to these arguments because it at least it corresponds to your what you see on the ground, what you see in terms of your own view. Whereas these central bankers and politicians that use unemployment rates and the word boom, you don't see anything like that. And so you're very susceptible to these alternate messages that are at least grounded in the reality that we're actually living in. Not this pie in the sky recovery business. Lower GDP means declining global influence, check, faltering faith in free markets, check, and less money for public services. A struggle over fixed resources fires the populism that turns politics into an ugly fight about identity, check. The shortage of funds for investment entrenches tired and inefficient institutions, check. Jeff, did you write it? Jeez. <laughs> Worst of all, the lack of growth limits Britain's scope to flourish. Jeff, in the next section, we're going to be talking about the volatility in income that people are, are earning pre and post GFC. Jeff, continuing with the article, the idea that Britain has a growth problem is not new, but few realize how deep a hole it is in. 
Whereas average annual GDP growth over the decade preceding the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009 was 2.7%, the new normal is now closer to just 1.7%. Yeah, and that, you know, a couple things there. Number one, 1.7% doesn't sound like a big difference from 2.5%. But as we've said all the time, we live in a nonlinear world. And living in a nonlinear world means compounding, which is everything. As Einstein supposedly, allegedly said, compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. I don't think he ever said it, but the point is compounding is everything because we live in a nonlinear world. And the difference between, you know, two and a half percent and 1.7 percent is enormous. It's, you won't maybe miss it over a couple of years, but over 15 years, it's indescribably huge. And what I object to most of all is this idea that this is a new normal. As you said, Emil, first, this isn't new. It's now 15 damn years already, and there's nothing normal about it. And accepting it and calling it normal is essentially surrendering to ignorance. It's surrendering to, oh, we'll just, uh, what can we do about it? It's, it's, there's nothing normal about this at all. And it's really a damn shame it's taken so long for people to start realizing. I mean, after 15 years, I suppose it's really hard to argue now that there's something wrong. And you're right, Emil, the great reset of the pandemic wasn't the imposition of socialism. It was, as you said, everybody took it as a get out of jail free card. History started over. All that pre-crisis stuff, that's in the past. Nobody cares anymore. We've got COVID and Corona to deal with. But the funny thing is, and this is kind of, I think, a major point that I like to make, and I know you make it all the time, Emil, is that what we're seeing in 2021 and 22 apart from consumer prices, is exactly the same pattern of behavior, pattern of lackluster, pattern of lack of recovery that we saw in 2009, 10, and 11 and going forward. We're seeing all of those things again. The only difference is that that lackluster recovery, lack of recovery in 2021 and 2022 was obscured by consumer prices when everybody confused the CPI for a red hot economy when That was never the case. Very well put, Jeff. In this article, they say the decade preceding the global financial crisis. And I was really, uh, I was on an interview with Blockworks and Captain Jack Farley. And he said, Emil, why are you using the decade before the global financial crisis as any sort of indicator of what's normal? That was a hot, bubbly economy. You can't use that. And the economists did. But guess what? I did not. I have data going back to 1945, 1950. I chose 1950 through 2000 and 1950 through 2007 to share with the audience. And I thought I'm being generous and conservative because if I use 1945, that was when the real rip roaring taking off, you know, rebuilding after the war. So 1950 is a good enough place to start. Jeff, real, real GDP per capita 1950 to 2000 in Britain, 2.14%. Over here, they were saying nominal was 2.7%. Okay. 1950 through 2007, 2.13%. Did I say that right or did I mix it all up, right? Through 2000, 2.14% real GDP per capita in Britain. 1950 through 2007, 2.13%. The same exact number right on target with what they're saying here. And then they said it fell to just 1.7 in nominal terms. In real terms, Jeff, 2008 through 2021, Britain, 
0.04% real GDP per capita growth. 15 years. That's unbelievable. And that's the point we keep trying to make. You know, think back to our discussion about unit roots and permanent shocks. That's what we're really telling you. All due respect to Captain Jack, that's, you know, what we're saying is that 2008 represented a paradigm shift. It represented a permanent shock. And so, yeah, maybe the economy in the middle 2000s was a bubbly, but it still produced the same output. It was bad output, sure, but it was it didn't represent anything different from the periods before then. And it didn't matter when the economy, either U.S., Britain, wherever around the world, fell into recession. Recessions were recessions, which meant that as soon as they were done, the economy went right back to where it had been before, where it was supposed to be, as if the recession never happened. That was the difference in 2007 and 2008. There was no great recession. There was, as you say, silent depression. That was the thing that happened. It was a permanent change, a permanent shock, a unit root. And it isn't about the it isn't about the middle 2000s. It's not about the 1990s. It's about the entire post-war paradigm from World War II through the euro dollar system up until 2007. Those are the two bookends. Euro dollar shows up, the euro dollar stops functioning, and everything in between we took for granted. Continuing on, and in this section, ladies and gentlemen, you'll learn what that difference in compounding is on a per-person basis. The Economist. In the decade to 2007, British productivity growth was second only to America in the G7. Awesome. In the decade to 2019, growth in output per hour work stalled to just 0.7% a year, making Britain the second lowest in the G7. And then they threw this in. Only Italy was slower. That's not necessary. That's not necessary, Economist. Okay. I think Alfonso uh, is going to take offense to that. And he should. Yeah. No, that's that's rude. It was unnecessary. Okay. Had Britain's productivity growth rate not fallen after the financial crisis, GDP per person in 2019 would have been 6,700 pounds. We'll convert that to dollars, which is $8,380 higher than it is. Jeff, before you step in, they're talking about productivity through 2019. I did... Pretty similar calculation, same concept. And I looked at real GDP based on real GDP gross, not a productivity. And I looked all the way through 2021. By 2021, each person in Britain is short $12,445 per year. Yeah, it's not, it's, that's the thing. It's not just. Not one time. Yeah, it's not like a one-time shortfall. It's a shortfall every year that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And whether you realize, and we remember the episode we did where we talked about trying to conceptualize, I think it was about uh, mass formation psychosis, um, this free-floating anxiety. Mm -hmm. You cannot conceive of these massive numbers. You cannot conceive of the fact that you should be a third better off today than you are. It just doesn't compute in our human brains, our lizard brains. So- what we feel is we feel that something's wrong, but we have no idea what it is. And nobody will tell us. As the point of the episode here is up until now, everybody has been utterly afraid to state the plain truth, which is that 2007 represented a radical departure in economic circumstances. It's not just about GDP or output or even markets. It's about livelihoods. It's about the advance and progress of society. And that has been severely curtailed and interrupted 
in a way that nobody will explain. We can't really conceive of, except when we put these numbers on paper. And even then it's hard to think about. And then nobody has any answers for why this is. And it's in some ways, I'm surprised the society hasn't fallen. It's not Lord of the Flies already because 15 years and mm. these staggering deficiencies and, and they're still going. And just to reiterate the point, ladies and gentlemen, the, the economist here, again, is just looking at the last 10 years to compare it to where we should be in 2019. But my study doesn't go back the last 10 years. It goes back all the way to 1950. So that's three generations in which anything that could have happened did yep. good and bad. So that's a reasonable, that's not an unreasonable sample to say, this is the baseline. And we are well short of that. And how much short? $12,500 per year by 2021. And that's the thing. You know, why was that the baseline? Why do we take it for granted? And a lot of people, the answer is, well, there was a post-war neoliberal order. And that's part of it. That's certainly part of it. But you know, Emil, your work uncovers there's a, mess. there's a huge monetary financial component to all of this. Without the money, without the sufficient supply, you can have all the neoliberal functions and institutions you want. You have, you're missing that one basic you know, impediment in the machinery of exchange. You don't grease the wheels of commerce enough. They grind to a halt, regardless of any of those other factors. <sighs> Jeff, bad news. The outlook is poor. <laughs> The OECD predicts that next year GDP in Britain will be stagnant. Official forecasts show that the real take-home pay will be lower in five years than it is today. Part of the problem is that boosterish politicians talk so much nonsense about growth. The statistics are noisy and complex enough for a clever civil servant to find a number that paints Britain in a favorable light. USA? Unemployment rate? Anything. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to confuse the issue, really. It really is. It's not hard to confuse. I mean, look, just simple GDP. We talk about this all the time. If you look at GDP in 2019, you would say it's at a record high. You look at the unemployment rate in the United States, it has a 50-year low. These things convey what sounds like a terrific economic boom. And it takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of guidance to unpack these things. And you can see, oh, no, these are bad. This is not good. It, it takes a little bit of effort, but you can get there. Nobody really wants to, though. That's the thing. Don't be fooled. Self-delusion stifles fresh thinking about policy. One reason Britain's economic debates have been tangential to growth, harmful even. For most of the 2010s, politicians obsessed about cutting deficits. Budget discipline is important, but hardly a cure for Britain's ills. When it comes to growth, Britain's politicians will the ends, but not the means. <laughs> That's a weird way of saying, you know, they always say, well, you know, British. politicians and central bankers, they all say that it's, it's almost Enron-esque. The future is what we want it to be. And we'll, we'll discount the present value of this glorified future into our current policy. In other words, they basically say growth solves all problems. And that is absolutely true. But if you don't know what's wrong, you aren't going to get the growth and therefore you're going to be left with the problems, which is exactly where we are. They don't know how to, an economy grows. They don't know what's wrong with the economy over the last 15 years. And Emil, don't you think this would be easy to figure out? Because I remember something happening in 2007 and 2008. I have a particular memory, and I think most people might even share that memory, about what happened in 2007 and 2008 that covered the entire world. It wasn't just one place or another. It wasn't just Britain. 
Although I did, I'm thinking back to the FOMC discussion in September 2007, where they were wondering if this dollar breakdown was a British problem or a Fed problem. And they never really answered that question, which brings us to today. We have this 2007-2008 breakdown in the global euro dollar system that's still there, still problem. And nobody, nobody is putting, I mean, 2007-2008, it sounds like it should be really easy to connect these dots. But as the, one, I think one of the major points of the article, it's also, and it's maybe even easier to obscure the truth. The rest of the article tells Britain to, and the Brits to <laughs> keep not a stiff upper, upper lip <laughs> and that they can recover. No, they can recover. They've been through worse. And that's true for the rest of the world. Britain has been here before. In 1979, in opposition, Margaret Thatcher lamented its declining economic standing. Quote, travel abroad and see how much better our neighbors are doing, she urged Tory supporters. Her uncompromising reforms led to nearly three decades in which British living standards closed on those in the rest of the rich world. Britain's advantages from the English language to the common law system have not gone away. If Britain is to avoid a bleak future, it must grasp reform. That will require a once-in-a-generation show of political courage, persuasion, and policy ingenuity. Just like four decades ago, there is no alternative. I would say not once in a generation, but once in four generations. But that's the point. That was, I mean, talk about conflating the problem here. If Britain undertakes a Thatcher-esque reform movement, it won't make a damn bit of difference. That's my point. The monetary system is broken, therefore the global mm -hmm. economy is broken, and therefore it won't make a bit of difference if you try to do political form. This, this is like the Soviet Union in the 1980s, perestroika. It was getting the cart before the horse, doing political reform before they reformed the economy. And it led to the utter collapse of the Soviet Union. Even the Chinese figured this out. I mean, for God's sake, you know, this is not about political form. This is in some ways incredibly much, it's much simpler than that. 2007, 2008 was not some breakdown in the political order. This was not some radical shift in the way that we think about neoliberal institutions and how they function. It was a big departure in how the monetary system works. And we can have an all big discussion about what that means and what we should do about it. But in the overview, the 30,000 foot view of what's going on, it's that simple. And that's how those are the two easiest dots to connect. But yet it's understandable why nobody has done it because nobody talks about it. We don't even admit that there's a problem. Let's connect dots back to the beginning of the show when I said there's some sort of correlation between Credit Suisse <laughs> Credit Suisses, credit default swapses, and faith in democracy. Here we go. So for the people who don't believe that there is some sort of global depression taking place, uh, last week Gallup released a global survey of happiness and unhappiness. And they only surveyed 127,000 people, Jeff, in 122 countries between 2021 and early 2022. They've been doing this since 2006. Jeff, I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count, whether or not the unhappiness reading low, the low in global unhappiness came in 2007. True or false? I believe that's probably true. That is true. Jeff, true or false, the global unhappiness increases did not happen randomly. They ratcheted up in very specific 
years. Actually, there's a, it's a one year delay. So this is a lagging indicator. So basically, Jeff, true or false, did global unhappiness rise? Again, 127,000 people across 122 countries experienced a rise in unhappiness coinciding with euro dollar two, euro dollar three, and euro dollar four. True or false? Is it the ratcheting effect? Because that's what I expect. You got 2008, two, or actually it'd be 2009, 2010, the and then another ratchet, 2011, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there, and then another one, 2015, 16. And it's, yes. the funny thing is, it's it's predictable. We've, we've, we've predicted it as it happens. We've connected these dots. And in one sense, it's good that other people are doing so. But, you know, as I've said all along, if we want to fix this thing, tell people what's wrong. When I say that, you know, we need Goldman Sachs to make more money in its FICC unit, bond trading unit, people think you're crazy. But that's literally the case. And I think that's kind of the bizarre correlation that you're talking about. Credit default swaps on Credit Suisse and happiness and democracy. The ability of Goldman Sachs to make money in FICC and the happiness of people around the world in terms of their own situation and their satisfaction with their global institutions. These things are correlated because that's where the money comes from. Without the money, the economy doesn't grow. Without the economy, people get really pissed off when you mess with their livelihood. And more than that, just their livelihood, but their children's opportunities. They can see how the future doesn't look like it was for them. They get very angry. And if you don't provide answers or at least plausible explanations, they're going to seek them in other more extreme fashion. We've seen this throughout history. That's the most frustrating part of this. You know, that's the fear that the, you know, the 1940s followed the 1930s because, of course, they did. And now we have the 2010s leading into the 2020s. And you have that fear in the back of your mind, especially given recent events in terms of invasions and whatnot. These things happen because, you know, what is the old saying? History repeats because nobody was listening the first time. That's basically it. Uh, I like George Friedman's quote on that matter, that history is going <laughs> to repeat probably. no matter what, but it's just nice to know what's coming. Is that a flaw in history or is that a flaw in people? Exactly. Oh, no, it's people. He's, that was his point. He's like, don't worry about uh, reading <laughs> so, your history or not. That's, well, that's not going to prevent it. We'll be repeating it? <laughs> it. It's just nice to know. So there's a correlation between the unhappiness at Credit Suisse because their credit default swaps spike during these euro dollar crises. And global unhappiness. So when bankers are unhappy, you'll be unhappy one year later. Now, some people may say, I'm going to trust the Gallup survey. This is some fly-by-night organization. They've only been around for decades and, and generations. And they only surveyed, what, 127,000 people. That's a <laughs> Yeah. That's a drop in the bucket, Jeff. What we need is someone that's been around for centuries. Perhaps, may I suggest, the University of Cambridge. And we don't need 100,000 some people. What we need is a survey of over 4 million people, Jeff, in 154 countries. University of Cambridge did a survey. And let's see, what is this survey called? I don't know. It's something about democracy. Oh, Global Satisfaction with Democracy Report. Goes back to 1996. Again, 4 million people, 154 countries. Jeff, can you imagine that kind of work? Jeff, true or false, faith in democracy has ratcheted down ever since 2006. It's ratcheted down and it's done so in a step stair fashion, not randomly, 
but with every single euro dollar crisis. And by the way, this survey stopped in 2019. Oh, yeah. I can't yeah. imagine what happened Obviously, in 2020. That's the case, yeah. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Tying all these things together, the credit default swaps at Credit Suisse isn't really about, for example, the solvency of Credit Suisse. It's about the liquidity in the euro dollar system. It's a deep financial monetary indicator, which puts all these things together. You know, they aren't bizarre correlations whatsoever. They're actually deeply personal and deeply fundamental, which is when the economy doesn't work, quite naturally, we don't care about anything else. We just want the system to work the way it's supposed to so that we can all flourish in the way that we know that we can. Because throughout human history, especially, you know, the last couple of centuries under the Industrial Revolution, not buying into the Marxist paradigm about end stage capitalism, there is an optimistic future out there for us. We don't need to be pessimistic. We just need to identify all of these things, connect all these dots, and then from there, we'll find the solution to it. Jeff, where can people reach you? You can find both of us at eurodollar.university. There has been some changes in my life, some changes in our show. We've added Stephen Van Meter, both as a guest to the Eurodollar University, a regular guest spot on the Eurodollar University show, as well as a partner for me, because for various reasons, I felt it was necessary to move on, work with Steve, because we both agree on some very uh, fundamental propositions in terms of investing in portfolio management. They can find him at PortfolioShield.net. We're also doing research services, which you can sign up for free in the, for a limited time at MarketsInsiderPro.com. And I believe we'll have some of these links or all of these links in the show notes and show descriptions. But it's really easy to find us. And don't forget, you got to go to Emil's site at EuroDollarEnterprises.com too, because it's a monetary madness. What is it? Monetary madness. It's, it's a entertaining spin on the euro dollar system. <laughs>